You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 34. Today we're asking the question, how can practitioners find and read research? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proven, and this week we thought we'd address a problem that comes up often for safety practitioners who'd like to engage more in evidence-based practice. And that's just, where do you look to find research online and how do you get proper access to it once you find it? This is a question that David and I get asked uh, quite a bit. Sometimes it's really quite direct. People say to us, hey, I want to read this paper, but I tried to go to the website and it's asking me $40 to get hold of a copy of one paper. Sometimes it's not quite that direct, it's a bit more subtle. We find people who are discussing and criticising ideas online when it's obvious that they haven't been able to find the original material, so all they've got is a sort of third-hand, hand-me-down version of the research. And so, yeah, we've thought that, you know, since you're listening to this podcast, which is all about safety research, that we'd give some tips for digging through the research yourself. Yeah, and you might even be a, a researcher who's um, doing full-time research. So hopefully you find this useful no matter what role you're in. And we thought, Drew, we might step through it in three separate questions. So we'll talk about how you search for good papers. So we'll talk about how you find it in the first place. Then how do you get hold of a copy of the paper? And then once you've got hold of it, the third question, how do you skim read it or, or review it to know if it's any good and how it might apply to what you're trying to find out? So with that as kind of our high-level framework, Drew, you um, sit on the editorial board of Safety Science, so can you start by telling us what an academic journal actually is and, and how does it work? Okay, th this one is tricky because it's one of those areas where the deep history of academia gets in the road of what might make any sort of sense. So, so quite literally, a journal is a periodical, which is going to make total sense to anyone who is maybe over the age of about 35 and it's going to seem crazy to anyone younger than that. The, the, the way a periodical works is you have sitting in your library or your office a big set of ring binders. And every week or every month or every six months, a new little supplement comes out and gets added into the last spot on the last ring binder. And eventually you just have shelves and shelves of these filled up. In academia, the way periodicals work is they only sort of update from the end, so their shelf just gets longer and longer. In fields like the law, they used to actually have corrections, so you'd actually have to like slide one out and slide a new one in, in various places. Now, that's the way it physically looks. So if you go to an old library, they will have places called stacks, which are just these really old, dusty shelves, and just long, long, hard-bound versions of these periodicals. And that's, uh, so David, you and I did our PhDs at different times. That is literally how I spent months of my PhD. It's wandering through the stacks with a scrap of paper telling me the number I'm looking for, digging out this big, thick volume, going through it to the page I want, taking it down to the photocopier, photocopying it. And that's how I get hold of a journal paper. Yeah, Andrew, I, I, I did do my undergraduate psychology in the mid-90s and I did exactly the same approach. And then you'd take the articles home and highlight them and write up on a piece of paper what you wanted to say and then book some time in the computer room at the university so that you could come and actually type it up. 
So the reason I gave sort of that version of what a journal actually is, is just to show how little sympathy I actually have for people who complain about not being able to find PDFs. Because it is so, so easy compared to the alternative. But the, the other side of this is how does stuff make it into those periodicals? And the idea is that academic authors, um, they write up a paper and they submit it to one of these journals. And a journal is just a part of a publisher that creates the periodical. These days, even though each journal works independently, almost all of them are owned by one of about three big publishers. So if you hear people complaining about Elsevier, which is the one that gets most often complained about just because it's the biggest, it's just a like a publishing house. And then under that, there are various brands. So Journal of Safety Science, Accident Analysis and Investigation, Reliability and Engineering System Safety, Journal of Safety Research, they're all owned by Elsevier, but they operate quite independently. They each have their own editorial board. You submit a paper to them. The editor-in-chief takes a quick look at it, chucks it out if he thinks it's not well written, or you know the English is just terrible, or it's um, crackpot. And then he passes the rest on to the associate editors. The associate editor then takes a much closer look at it. They read the paper carefully. They think about who would be good people to comment and criticise on it. Very often, so 90% of the time at that stage, we'll send it back to the authors and say, I'm sorry, this has got some problems that are just too big to send it out for peer review. The other 10% go out to experts who read and comment on them, send comments back to the authors. The authors respond to those comments who then send them back in. So that's what peer review is, and that's what a paper is, is it's something that's been through this process. And the reason why it's not all readily available is really because of these big publishing houses that own the journals. So who actually owns the paper once it's gone through that process is kind of a bit confusing. The authors have some rights over the paper, and in particular the authors have the right to share the version of it that they first submitted And they very often have the right to share later versions of it as well, including the published version, privately. What they can't do is take the final published version and just put it up on a website for everyone else to access. And so often when you find that there's a charge, that charge is being issued by the publisher of the journal, who's trying to act as a bit of a gateway to get to the research. So Drew, now that all of these journals are are published online, I'm not sure how many people anywhere in the world still receive hard copies of their of their journals each each month or each six months like you said so we can now search for these journals online and we can and we can search through either proper databases and I might get you to talk to a few of those databases or we can just search in our traditional kind of search engines so there's a number of ways we can go and find these papers now so probably the laziest way to do it and by laziest I mean this is the way most of us do it most of the time is we use something called Google Scholar so Google Scholar is just, instead of typing in google.com, you type in scholar.google.com. And it works exactly the same as Google, except that it's got a bit of a filter to only include things that look like they are journal papers. It doesn't do any actual like reputability check. It doesn't do any check as to whether it is actually a proper academic paper. But it does generate results that look like academic papers. So everything that you get probably has a PDF somewhere that you can download. I pretty much exclusively use Google Scholar now, Drew. I did have a period of time where I didn't have access to uh, university libraries or library catalogs, but 
Google Scholar, if you're looking at a particular topic, I find you may not be able to get the exact paper you want, but you will be able to find PDF versions of papers that are on that topic if you're searching a fairly a fairly general topic. So you can start to hone in your search that way. So Drew, when I'm, I suppose when we're looking at databases or Google Scholar, do we just sort of type in the general topics that we're that we're trying to find? Is is that the way you'd you'd approach trying to search for an article that's going to be useful? Well, the, the two most common things that people come back with when they've gone looking for a paper is they either say, oh, I've gone looking for this and I can't find anything on this topic. Or they say, I've looked for this and there's way too much. I can't find what I'm actually looking for. And so this is something that Google is really good at for general search inquiries, but is really, really bad at for academic information. In that what it tends to prioritize is very seldom exactly what you're looking for. And so people who are used to looking for papers have come up with a number of sort of standard tricks that you need to use in order to make sure that the things that you're looking for appear near the front. And these are, these are actually things that date back to the early days of search engines that Google made unnecessary. And this is one reason why Google became so popular as a search engine is that you didn't have to know these tips and tricks, but you've still got to use them to make the search engine work for you. And so a couple of the simple ones are just using things like direct quotes around whole phrases. So if you search for safety culture into Google, it sees those two words, safety and culture, and it doesn't necessarily search for that term, safety culture. Whereas you put uh, quotes around the term, then it looks specifically for that term. If you put a plus sign in front of a term, it says that that has to appear somewhere in the metadata. If you put a minus sign, it says we don't want that to appear. So one of the common things when searching for safety information is you get all these medical journal papers and you realize that actually we don't care about medical information. And so you just put a little minus medicine, minus nursing, minus drugs. And then suddenly all of those papers disappear from your search and the stuff that you're looking for appears in front of you. So Drew, if I wanted to say, say I wanted to think about how might safety leadership impact safety culture? I can type into uh, Google Scholar. So the best thing to start, I'll go into Google Scholar and I'll type safety leadership in quotations and then a plus and then safety culture in quotations. And that's going to pull for me papers that talk about safety leadership and safety culture. And so, so while I'm talking, David, do you want to um, open up a window in the background and just check that this one does work for our listeners? But yeah, there's a big difference. If you just like in Google, I'd almost be tempted to type in how does safety leadership influence safety culture? And that's unlikely to work in an academic search engine. Whereas putting safety leadership in quotes and putting safety culture into quotes will tend to help out. The other thing to do and is not to use search engines at all, but to use some other ways of trying to locate papers. So David, you mentioned library catalogs. And a lot of library catalogues can be accessed by people who aren't actually members of the library. You need to be a member to get hold of the actual papers, but you can use them like a search engine. And they have some really useful tools built into them. So you can very quickly, for example, filter on time and find stuff that's been published very recently. You can filter by academic field. So you can just untick the box that's related to medicine or to architecture or to anything that you're not interested in and just leave in the fields where safety papers are likely to be located. And then the other thing to do is to, and we'll get onto this a little bit when it comes to getting hold of papers as well, is rather than using searches to find interesting papers, 
to use networking tools to find papers. So a lot of the journal websites have got recommendation engines built in. The same way you, if you've ever been looking for a job and you've subscribed to a job search site and it sort of regularly sends you job ads that you might be interested in, you can do the same thing with all the journal sites. You can say, please send me recommendations, and you tell it the topics that you're interested in, and anytime something new gets published, usually you don't get bombarded, you get like an email once a week that says, you know, here's a bunch of papers recently that you might be interested in. Andrew, then the last way to search is that there are specific I mean, I suppose they're social or professional networking sites for research and researchers. So sites such as ResearchGate and Mendeley, where lots of uh, academics create individual profiles and they publish either, like you said, early, they publish drafts of their research that they've submitted to the journals. And they also might, or they'll at least list all of the different publications they've made. And then that, that can enable you to actually contact them directly, just like you might send someone on LinkedIn a message. And you can find out how to get a paper that way. Yes. So I'm I'm a member of ResearchGate. I don't tend to use Mendeley so much these days. But ResearchGate is particularly good for finding academics who do work that you're interested in. And then that, that's the quickest way to find stuff is know who tends to publish in this area. And then every time they put out something new, have a look at it. Not only will that immediately be, might be of interest but they're likely to have cited other stuff or referenced other stuff that is interesting. So, Drew, we've found our papers now. So whether we've just used plain old Google or Google Scholar or a, a database, gone direct to the journal, we've gone to one of these social networking tools, we've handed our topics, we've found the papers and we've honed in on one and we go, okay, great, here's, here's the paper I want to get my hands on. How do I do that if it's paywalled? Okay, so I was very tempted to um, order this section from most legal to least legal ways of getting hold of papers. First thing I just need to quickly explain is that the, the basic rule for what is legal and what is not is authors own the text until they submit it to a publisher. So the version that they first submit to a publisher is called a preprint. And the publisher has basically no rights over that preprint. The author is free to share it. They're free to put it up on their website. Uh, they'll very often put it up on sharing sites or on their university webpage. If they haven't made it available, it's probably just because they haven't gone to the effort of making it available rather than that they are restricted. The version that the publisher actually prints out that's in that really nice, pretty printed journal type format that people might be used to seeing with you know, the two columns, the big heading, the abstract in italics, that has been edited by the journal. And so the journal has some rights over it. Usually after a couple of years, the author has the right to freely share it or to freely put it at least up on archive sites. But during those two years, effectively, that version is not free for open sharing, but it is free for private sharing for a number of different uses. The big thing is that there is absolutely nothing wrong with the author directly sending you a copy of the paper. And it is usually okay for any individual who has a copy of the paper also to share a copy of the paper with you. What's not okay is putting it up on a publicly accessible website. So the fact that you can't find a publicly accessible website does not mean that the paper isn't there ready to be shared with you. Yeah, and I suppose, Drew, like you said there, from the, from the least legal to the most legal, and we're not even going to talk about other ways, but there are sites that, that illegally distribute 
research and, and we're just not going to talk about those because we just shouldn't talk about those. Yes, I'm not sure whether you were talking to your audience the audience they were talking to me there, David, but I agree absolutely. We're not we're not oh, going you're to... the one with it you're the one with the job in academia, Drew. So um we just yeah, we won't talk about those. But um but there there's there's plenty of ways to get it without even needing to do yeah, that yeah, anyway. Yes. I don't think the bottom line here is that you don't even need to go to those sites in order to get hold of it. So th- this is my own sort of order I use. And it is very, very seldom that I will get to the end of this list and not have a copy of the paper. Um, The first thing is just search Google for the exact title of the paper in quotes. You'll notice that you get lots of hits back. And those hits are all from different places. One of those places will be the official journal. And that place you will not be able to access the paper unless you pay for it. And that will usually come up as the first link. So you click on the first link, you see that the paper costs money. Don't stop there. Next couple of places will just be weird indexing services that all that don't even have a copy of the paper. They just refer you back to the journal. But then after that, you start getting hits like the author's homepage or the author's home university or a public archive that has a copy of the paper. So very often, you know, the fourth or fifth or sixth hit in Google will be somewhere that has a free PDF of the paper. Just that quick search most of the time will find the PDF. The second thing you can do is look up the author directly. So that first one looks up the title of the paper. The other one is look up the author. If they're still working in academia, they will have a homepage at their university. They will have a page on somewhere like ResearchGate with a list of their publications. Depending on how proud of their publications they are or the institution's policies, very often a lot of those will be clickable links directly to a PDF of the paper. Much older academics, a lot of their old papers, they don't do this and they're less tech savvy, so they're less likely to do it. But most recently published research you can access like that. Yeah, Drew, look, I just did that exactly while you were talking. I just typed in the title of one of our papers and I think came up with about seven hits. It's on it's on Science Direct, which is obviously the journal page, and it's on ResearchGate. It's on the Griffith University Research Repository. It's also on PsychNet, and you can just see on your search results on the sort of the right-hand side the imaginary column, you know, where the PDF exists and where the PDF doesn't. So even though that, you know, is still a paywalled paper, I think there was at least two ways of getting it straight away. Oh, brilliant. The next thing that might not appear obvious to a lot of people is just ask the author. So the authors both have permission to share the paper and are very, very willing to give copies of the paper. It's not like these, it's not like a book where the book sells 10,000 copies and the author's like not going to give out a free version of it. We earn nothing from the papers. We don't get paid any time you pay to download it. And we love people reading it. So there are sort of low-key ways to do this. Uh, on something like ResearchGate, there's a button which says you basically ask for a copy, which just sends a list off to the authors. So, you know, every couple of weeks I'll log into my ResearchGate account and there'll be 30 people who've asked for PDFs. And even if it's something that I'm not allowed to publicly share... I can just privately send off a copy to each of those people. The other thing is you just send an email. Academics get lots of emails, so you want to be polite about it. But just, hey, I'm interested in your research. I've been trying to get hold of a copy of this paper and I can't. Could you send me one? We'll usually get the paper back. I've tried those ways, Drew, and and always had had a good reception. You know, you just need to go, you just, if you know the university that the person's at, you can go onto their, their staff sites and you can get the person's, the person's work email and you can just send them an email. And like you said, Drew, people are usually very happy that people are reading their work. So, 
yeah, it might take a week or two, but you'll you'll get a copy of the paper. Yeah, and d- depending on who it is, you'll get a copy of that paper. Plus, they'll say, "Oh, by the way, you should read this, this, and this as well," and you'll find your inbox filled up with a reading list. Um, and then the final one is just to ask someone who's got access. So anyone who has a user account at a university, the university has subscription to a large number of journals. Not every university has exact access to the same journals. So academics will follow this process with each other. We'll ask someone at another university, hey, do you have access to this journal? But anyone who's got even just a student account at a university shares in the subscription. So if they log in while they're on campus, then they have free access to a lot of stuff which is paywalled when they're off campus. And being on campus includes being virtually on campus through VPNs and things like that. So if all else fails, just ask someone else who might have access and you're likely to get access to a paper pretty readily. Yeah, that's good advice. Most people will know someone who's doing some kind of study at a university and yeah, make friends with them if you get to the bottom point. But like you said, Drew, like to be to get to that stage, you know, that might only happen one in 10 papers that you're looking for maybe. So Drew, we found we found the papers and, and people can get them and, and it, through those different ways. And then so you've, you've got a paper and the title might sound really interesting and good, but you know what's probably important now is to just to talk through what makes a good paper, what makes what makes good research, and you know, and how can how can a person who gets hold of a paper kind of go through it to decide whether or not it's useful, or they should do anything about what it says. Okay, so so we, we talk a lot on this podcast about specific types of research and how to evaluate that, but I thought it'd be nice to have a bit of a just a general discussion of how do you decide very quickly whether something is going to be worth your time or not. David, you do this as much as I do, so I'm very interested in your sort of rules of thumb. One thing I've got into the habit of is, I mean, every paper's got an abstract. It's only 200, 300 words. So you read that just to get a sense of what the paper is promising. You Knowing what it promises is the first bit. If it doesn't promise something useful, probably it's not helpful. The second thing I do in safety is I flip straight to the method section. And I don't do that to evaluate the method. I do that to see if there is a method. Because if there's no method section, then the paper's not actually a research paper. It's a literature review or it's a discussion paper. It's not going to have original results in. Now, that's absolutely fine if the title of the paper is a literature review of. And, and that's what I'm looking for is like a review of literature. But if it's not claiming to be a literature review and it doesn't have a method section, then it's unlikely to be useful. David, where do you look first? Yeah, look, I usually get a lot out of the abstract, I think. Drew and, and sort of frame through like what what problem do I think that the authors are trying to discuss or solve and sort of how clear is that problem because they should very early on in their abstract kind of say what they're what they're trying to do and usually the abstract will then actually refer to a method or not so you know I'll be interested if someone said we did a survey of 20 people or you know someone said we did 87 interviews or something I'll, I'll just form a view of how once I know the question they're trying to solve and how they went about trying to solve it, it'll probably give me some pretty good insight into whether what they're going to conclude in the paper is you know, something that's going to be interesting and maybe generalizable. Yeah, so, so you mentioned the question there. I, I would love it if every paper very quickly in the introduction told you what their research question is. Um, unfortunately, that's not the case. Often you can sort of start reading an introduction and you just get lost in a sea of background information. But if a paper is written well, then the introduction will make clear what the question is that they're trying to answer. If they don't, an easy thing to do is skip right to the conclusions 
And what did they conclude? Because what they concluded then tells you what the question was. And so from either the introduction or the conclusions, I like to take a guess myself at how I would investigate that. So if it like claims to be making statements about what is the most risky thing to do in construction, then I would expect it to be doing some sort of analysis of accident statistics. If it's making a claim about leadership, I might expect it to be collecting data from leaders and for followers or something like that. And so the next thing to do is just compare what the method is with what the claims are or what the question is that they're answering. And just check that it's something that you're comfortable with. So a lot of the papers that I dismiss are ones where they claim to be making answers about risk, whereas actually all they've done is basically surveyed people about what they think the risk is. Yeah, that's not always easy and intuitive, Drew, but as a, as a rough rule of thumb, if, if the question is trying to say what is actually happening here or, or why is this happening, then you need a research method that's not just superficial, not just a bunch of surveys or things like that. It needs to be observational. It needs to be you know, embedded, in my opinion anyway. And I think if someone's just trying to say is how many times does this happen or what do people think, then a survey is absolutely fine. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The other thing that I'd encourage people to think about when they're reading papers is the difference between what the authors say and what the research says. That's a mistake that you see a lot of people, um, particularly students or people who aren't familiar with academic research. They say, oh, this paper tells me something. But that hasn't come from the results of the paper. That's just come from the introduction or the background to the paper. So in other words, it's not original stuff coming from that. One of the ones I notice all the time, because David and I both work with Sidney Decker, and he gets cited a lot. And you'll see someone make a bold claim about safety, and then the citation is to Sidney Decker. And immediately alarm bells go off, because Sidney's a theorist. He doesn't tend to do a lot of empirical research. So if someone is citing Sidney as if they're citing a fact, you know there's a mismatch there. You know, if they're citing him to cite an idea, well, that makes total sense. You know, if they're saying, you know, some people advocate strongly for restorative justice, cite Decker. You think, okay, fine. Then they say, you know, restorative justice is effective in increasing organizational learning, cite Decker. You think, no. So that, that's sort of the difference between what the authors say, which is your know, opinions, ideas, statements, and what the research says, you know, what is the actual data coming out of the investigation. Yeah, and I've been caught out even even in prepar in preparing for these podcast episodes a few times, Drew, because I get my head spins whenever there's four pages of tables and numbers and statistics in in these papers, and so I'll go to what the authors conclude and go, oh, Drew, this would be a really interesting thing to talk about. Here's the finding from this paper, and you'll come back and say, no, 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 look at the statistics. It's a it's a weak, if anything, relationship just because you can read the statistics better than me. So it's where you've said there. Drew would be what the authors say and what the research actually says is um, it might take some time and you might need some help, but uh, making sure that the, the author's conclusions in the paper do actually match kind of what they found with their method. Yes. So the, the general rule of thumb is just read the paper as narrowly as possible. Authors like to spruce up their claims. They like to talk about broader implications, but it's, it's best to just stick to assuming that what the paper shows is what the paper shows. You know, I think that's been a, a good general discussion there about how to how to read papers, look for questions, look for the methods that they've used, look for who the authors are, and you know how the claims in the paper matches what the what the results from the from the research shows. And so the question people have is kind of how do I apply this? Does do these findings 
matter for me and my company. So there's a bit of a topic in in academic research about the generalizability of results. It's not in our notes here, but I thought it might be good if you give a bit of a, maybe give a bit of a discussion about how you see the generalizability. So if there's research in healthcare and I'm in the construction sector, what do I do with the findings from that research? So I don't want to get too much into the technical side of it, but I need to introduce one technical term here, which, which is the idea of validity. And there are three main types of validity we talk about when we're talking about evaluating papers. Construct validity, internal validity, and external validity. So construct validity is about when a paper is measuring something, are they measuring it in the right way? So that's the question of something's making a claim about risk. Are they measuring risk or are they measuring perceptions of risk? Someone's making a claim about leadership. Are they actually measuring leadership or are they measuring opinions about leadership? Someone's measuring culture. Are they actually measuring culture or are they measuring climate or organizational structure or something else? So that's construct validity. Um, that one's probably the hardest one for non-academics to worry about. And so a lot of the time you just need to trust that the peer reviewers have done their job and that the constructs are reasonably reliable. Internal validity is how much within the scope of the paper it has correctly answered the question. So someone is working out what is the safest way to build scaffolding in construction. Then has the paper given a good answer to the safest way to build scaffolding in construction? Have they answered the narrow question well? And then external validity is how much does that matter beyond exactly what they did in the paper? So in the paper it would have been even more narrower than that. They would have been looking at a certain type of scaffolding in a certain type of construction in a certain company in a certain country. So external validity is how much can you go beyond that? Can you go beyond that company? Can you go beyond that exact circumstance? Can you go beyond scaffolding? Can you go beyond construction? And the way usually to do that is to look at how much detail they've applied, they've given you about the type of situation. And can you match that to your own circumstances? So if they've been vague about the type of company or vague about the type of work, it's really hard to know how similar yours is. Whereas if they've been really specific, then you can say, okay, I'm not in scaffolding and construction, but the type of things they were talking about, where they were talking about small teams, where the person who leads the team is an expert and the rest of the people are basically unskilled and following along. Oh, that's actually pretty similar to the type of work we're doing in quarrying, where you've got your hired hands, but with expert foremen. So because it's similar enough, probably what they say about leadership and safety rules matches as well. Yeah, look, Drew, I think, I think that's... That, um... The last bit you said there is 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 something that every practitioner can kind of do is is form that view just just by having some some thought around the context that the research was conducted within and then how that relates to their own context. Like you said, it might be very specific because it might be the same industry and and the same type you know a very similar type of organisation to your organisation, or it could be you know slightly more removed, like you said. But it could be like, well, hey, this is about pilots in cockpits, but you know, like you said, the context isn't you know, in some ways he's quite similar to clinicians in an operating theatre. Um, and like we know, the transfer of, of, of research from, you know, different industries goes on quite a lot. That's actually something that I got pulled up on by someone a little while ago. And it sat with me for a while. We, we tend to make these sort of broad assumptions about industries. And the bit that I caught, got caught with is when we're talking about something like healthcare, there are very, very different environments. And so what goes on in a surgical theatre 
might in fact be very, very similar to what goes on in a cockpit. And so you can look at research from one and look at research from the other and say, hey, there are all these learnings we can take from one to the other. But to make the claim that healthcare is like aviation is ridiculous because <laughs> there are parts of healthcare that are nothing like surgery. You, what goes on in an emergency room is nothing like what happens in planned surgery. What goes on in a palliative care ward is nothing like either of them. And so you know, it's really about looking for what exactly were they looking at this in this study? And were they trying to solve a problem or trying to investigate a situation which is similar to what we, the problems we face and the situations we experience? So, Drew, in terms of finding out, because we've talked about finding an individual paper and, and getting hold of it and then reviewing it, but that individual paper will sit within a, within a, a body of research literature. And so we know that straight away because, you know, all the papers will have a reference list and there might be somewhere between 20 and, and 200 references uh, in that the paper references. So if someone's reviewed a paper and they've, they've, you know, got some interesting ideas out of it, but they actually want to look a little bit broader at the body of literature, how might they start from that paper and then move kind of out, out into the body of literature and, and, and find new papers? Yeah. Thank, thanks, David. That's a really good question. The, the way I like to think about this one is forwards, backwards, and sideways. So when a paper's got a set of references in it, if you follow those references, you're going backwards in time. These are all things that were published before that paper. So you're looking at where the information originally came from. And that's really important if you want to get to the bottom or the origin of ideas. So the paper might mention safety too. That doesn't mean that it's the expert source on safety too. You look at the references and you find, oh, they've cited this book by Eric Holnagel about safety too. And so you might go back to that original source to find out where the ideas come from and get their most original, most clear versions. Forward citations is like traveling forward in time from the paper. So this is looking for other people who have read the paper and then written follow-up stuff. Um, so Google Scholar is particularly good for this. If you look at Google Scholar, under any entry, it's got a cited by link. And so that cited by tells you everyone else who since that paper has not only read it, but has written something else that uses that as a foundation. And so particularly for people who are doing research themselves, this is really useful because you can find people who are doing very similar work as you are doing because you know, they've been inspired by the same stuff. They've you've know, written follow-ups. You'd be much better to read and follow on from the latest stuff than from the original stuff. And then the idea of going sideways is just to realize that academics are pretty specialized. So if they publish one paper about something, and particularly if you find it good, if you find that they are readable, interesting, relevant, you think that they're reasonably reliable, then probably those are habits that they have. And so you go sideways, you look for the author's name and you type their name into the search engines or you click on their name in Google Scholar and find out what else they've written. Um, can be a very quick way of finding something that is more relevant to your precise question, is find something that's roughly relevant find out what else the authors have written. Um, that's actually a good rule of thumb. If you think it's relevant, you look at what else they've written and there's nothing else that's relevant. Probably they're not actually the expert you thought they were. Yeah, and so, and so Drew, I, I, like, I like that and um, actually use the forward citations quite a bit because it's, it's, it's quite common. You know, there's lots of papers published every year um, in the field and, you know, you'll get something and all of a sudden, I think we've done it a couple of times on this podcast, it might be eight or 10 years old. And so if you just stop there, I think particularly when we're looking at um, the VR episode where we like had, had, had some research from 
you know, the, the early or mid 2000s. And then we picked up a, a systematic literature review from 2019 or something just by going forward and just by finding, you know, what's the latest stuff. Um, and I think that's really, really important. So Drew, we, we haven't got it here, but I, I was thinking um, people generally read books. So I was, I'm still thinking of this search string, like if someone wanted to find out about safety leadership and they type safety leadership into Google, you know, how would, how would you advise people about the difference between reading some academic papers on, uh, on say, say safety leadership versus just picking up a book, you know, from Amazon on safety leadership? Oh, that, that, that's a tough question, David. I'm, I'm curious what you've got in mind by asking the question and whether this is an invitation to slag certain people off. No, absolutely not. I suppose I suppose under underneath one part of that is that you know anyone can write a book and it's not subject to any peer review or any sort of process of trying to determine how how accurate the information is and how reliable the information might be. I mean, I could write a book on on any kind of subject I wanted to tomorrow. So my comment, I think it was a loaded question, but it was more about books are easy to get your hands on. If you want to pay forty bucks, you can pay forty bucks and get a book as opposed to an individual paper. And they typically be a bit easier to read, you know, whereas academic papers can be hard work, you know, but but there's compromises and trade-offs with the two different mediums. So I guess there are there are a few different types of books, and it's really hard to know which type of book it is until you've picked it up and read it. You, often you can't even tell from the reviews. So some books are written by people who, I don't want to sound derogatory, but I think the most accurate description would be they are disciples of ideas in safety. So they have maybe a inherited knowledge that's come from the academic research, but they're not deeply familiar with it. And they're trying to take that knowledge and translate it for practitioners. So those sorts of books can be very helpful and often very useful because they're written by people who are on that sort of boundary of they're interested enough that they've probably read lots of stuff, but they're practical enough that they're trying to turn it into applied knowledge from uh, experience. I don't want to name names negatively. So a good positive example, say, would be the work of Tim Shaw. Very, very readable, not an academic himself, but understands the academic literature, does pay a bit of time to literature and translates it into practice. Someone going a little bit more academic, someone like Todd Conklin has a PhD write stuff which is mostly from a practitioner's perspective rather than a research perspective. Um, so those sort of things are great for engaging in the space of ideas, ideas for how to apply them. They're like fellow travellers on the road with you as you try to apply research. You then have books that are written by academics, but they're not academic books. I'd, I'd put some of um, Sid Decker's stuff in that category. That you know they're not written for an academic audience; they're written for a practitioner audience. The amount of research content in them is very, very low. They don't have any original research in the book. They might have sort of about as much research as one or two papers, um, and lots of storytelling that wraps around that research. Yeah, I mean, I think Sydney's stuff tends to, you know, his writing style tends to be heavily referenced. You know, and and most of his chapters in all of his books have have fairly strong reference lists around them. I think someone like like Eric Holnagel's work is is more sort of story and ideas, not story in a in a fictional sense, but more just like narrating the the literature as opposed to directly referencing the literature. But I, I think from a question point of view, Drew, I think it's just 
worth because we're talking about accessing research and, you know, that research makes its way into some books and people can get their hands and people like getting their hands on books and audio books and things like that. And I think we just conclude that just be discerning around the ideas you take out of any published materials, just like you would in the tips that we've given you about about the academic papers. Yeah, I guess the big bit of discernment I'd say is be very wary of treating secondhand ideas like they're the first-hand ideas. So, you know, if you want to know about Safety 2, particularly if you want to be in a position where you can criticise it and point out the problems with it, then please don't do that unless you've read Eric Holnagel's book, because everything else is a reinterpretation by other people of that work. I probably picked a bad example because a lot of the stuff that Eric has written is reinterpretations and you know variations on that original work, but you, you get the point. Yeah, and and I think it was episode seventeen where I interviewed Carsten Bush, who'd, who'd done his master's thesis on the original works of Heinrich and gone back to a lot of the original source material from the twenties through till the till the forties. And I know that Carsten's just in the final stages of um, his his book manuscript that kind of explores that much the work of Heinrich much more deeply. And I think that's his big, if you go back to that episode, that's his big um, takeout, which is that a lot of the ways that that work's being talked about in the last 30 years is inconsistent with the original ideas and the, re- the context of the original material. Yeah. I think my favorite version of that is there's a particular paper that I've wanted to get my hands on for years. And every time I see someone else reference that paper, I think, ah, someone has got hold of a copy of it. I can ask them for it. And no one's ever got a copy of it. And so this unfortunately happens both in academia and in book writing, is people don't actually go back to the original sources. They get a little bit lazy. And what you end up is these mirror reflections of the ideas rather than the ideas themselves. Yeah. So, Drew, we've been through sort of finding an article, getting your hands on a copy, reviewing and interpreting it, how you think it might apply, where the research sits within the broader context of, of, of other types of um, information mediums. And so you've written a few practical takeaways here. And so I might let you go through these because we always finish our episodes with practical takeaways and this one's no different. But what's your, what's your advice for people in this space? Okay, so, so three, I hope, are simple and clear takeaways. The first one is if you're a practitioner Probably, if you're a young researcher, definitely get into the habit of going back to the original sources. Most arguments in safety, most of the disagreements we have are because people have a twisted second-hand version of the research. Um, David, I know you've got into arguments on LinkedIn. I have too, with people who you realise after you've been arguing for a while that not only have they not read the stuff, they're refusing to read the stuff. And you just think, okay, what is the point you don't actually know what someone has said and yet you're criticising their work or you're defending their work. So just get into the habit of going back and reading the original sources. The second takeaway is about how easy that is. Most papers, certainly recent ones, are available for free. Never pay to get hold of a paper and don't give up after a very quick search thinking, hey, this isn't available. I do a lot of my writing and certainly all my podcasting sitting at my desk at home. I don't use my university access to get hold of papers. I very, very rarely need to fire up the VPN and pretend I'm at the university to get hold of a PDF because they're all just publicly available on the web. And the third one is, if you're not used to reading academic research, 
I think you'd be surprised at just how accessible most of the papers are. Most academic research papers have lots of ideas and background information in them around the topic. Even before you get to the research, they often give you a really good summary of what's been written in a field and a good understanding of that field. And most of the ones that get published are actually, you know, reasonably well written. They're more likely to have errors of English and grammar than they are, you know, highfalutin academic language that's making them unreadable. Yeah, well, I'd say in the safety science discipline, Drew, but I've in some of the institutional work and institutional logics and organizational studies stuff, I didn't understand most of the words that were, were in that paper. But you're right, in the safety science space, most of the most of the papers are very readable. Yeah, administrative science and social science does actually get really unreadable. And in that case, the books are actually even worse. But safety science, definitely usually readable. Psychology, usually quite readable. A lot of organisational stuff that doesn't go down the institutional theory type line is very, very readable. So, Drew, do you have some questions for our listeners? So I guess the biggest one I'd like to know is just, I'm interested... We have, we've never done a sort of poll of our listeners, so I'm interested how many people actually read papers. How many of you listen to the episode and go and read the paper that we've talked about? How many of you sort of just trust our summaries of it? And if you don't tend to read papers or you don't read papers as much as you'd like to, what are the big disincentives or obstacles that get in the way? Certainly as an academic, I'd love to sort of know what those disincentives are so that we can do things about them. So, Drew, this week we asked the question, how can practitioners find research? And so I think the answer is start with Google, move forward from there to uh, to contacting the author or just uh, phoning a friend. And um, 99 times out of 100, you should be able to get a copy of the paper you want uh, without having to uh, to pay for it. Andrew, we've we've also tried to help help our listeners with, you know, once they get their hands on that paper, you know, how to know if it's any good or not. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Please send us any comments, questions, reviews, ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 